Uh, let's continue our worship and open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Or if you have your apps, Mark chapter 2, verses uh, 13 through 17. And I'll be reading from the ESV. And just keep your uh, Bibles open there uh, for now. Uh, if we look in the, uh, the Gospel of Mark again and again, we see masses and the multitudes gathering around Jesus. Uh, Jesus' popularity rose very quickly. He was a master teacher and master healer. People wanted to be next to Jesus. But within the masses, we see uh, various different groups there for various different reasons. And I just want to share with you uh, just, just three for now. The first one is we see the crowd. Uh, Mark likes to talk about and, and identify the crowd. Uh, they are fascinated and interested uh, about Jesus. Uh, he is uh, explaining the law in, in very profound ways, and he's performing amazing miracles. And so they are gathering around to catch a glimpse of this man named Jesus. Uh, they like following him around, but very few of them actually commit themselves to be a follower of his. Uh, they aren't transformed. Uh, they're there to catch a show. The second group that we see are religious leaders. Uh, these are Jesus' main opponents. Uh, main, uh, Jesus was their main competition. Uh, they were there to monitor Jesus, uh, to catch him slipping up, so they can disqualify and discredit his ministry. And so that's why they are there. Uh, a third group that we see are the sick and diseased. These are people that have a physical need. And hearing about Jesus' ability to heal, uh, they go and approach and they seek out Jesus. We saw this in the leper early on in this series. And last week, we saw the paralytic and their four friends seeking out Jesus for healing. And so when we look at these three distinct groups, we understand why they're there. Uh, it makes sense that they're seeking this man named Jesus out. And a lot of them actually act in faith, especially the ones that are sick and diseased. And so we're not too shocked to see these three groups there, but by far, in my opinion, the most fascinating uh, group within this mass is actually Jesus' disciple. Jesus' disciples are there because Jesus asked them to be there. And I, I find this very fascinating. Right? See, people ask um, uh, me and Jane, my wife Jane, uh, who made the first move? Who made the first move in this relationship? And Jane and I, we have, uh, you know, we have our own versions of the story. Uh, but after they find out the details surrounding our first encounter or when we started dating and got engaged and married, uh, they don't believe my story. They're not convinced that Jane would make the first move towards me because uh, on paper, I had nothing to offer Jane. Uh, Jane was already established in her career as a teacher, teaching at the ABC, ABC School District. I was a poor seminary student, getting poorer by the day because of my school debt. I was making $500 a month as an intern at the church. She was making literally eight times more than me. And so when I say, yeah, you know, Jane made the first move, they're like, oh, whatever. It was you that made the first move towards her. Right? And then when Jane decided to marry me, like fiscally and socially, it was a little reckless of her to actually marry me. Uh, but she ended up giving me a shot. I, I think I caught her at the right moment right, in her season of life. But yeah, I made the first move. See, when someone initiates a relationship, there's, something, there's an appeal, right? Uh, there's something that, we in, that, that interests us about them, so we make the first move. They have something to offer us, or there's compatibility. We share the same interests, so then we make the first move in boldness saying, hey, I like you. I want to date you. 
or let's get married, right? But there has to be something about that individual that makes us want to make that first move. See, when we see Jesus start his ministry, he makes some very questionable moves. He, he, he goes first to what? Fishermen, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And he calls them, he initiates, he approaches them. Hey, you come follow me. Now, this is unusual because Pastor Michael shared with us at this time, if you want to be a follower, the student initiates with the teacher. The student approaches the master. But here we see Jesus approaching these blue-collar, uneducated, unimpressive individuals to be a part of his team. This is, this is weird. Why does Jesus do this? By far, the disciples are the most fascinating group that we see following Jesus around. Because Jesus is the one who initiates relationship with them. In our passage today, we will see Jesus initiate once again taking the first step towards another individual. But this time, not only does it not make sense, it's offensive. It is offensive. It's scandalous. He offends his contemporaries. So once again, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 7. Let's give our full attention as we read God's holy word. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined uh, at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. Amen. All right, this one's a little bit of a head scratcher, right? Uh, This makes no sense at all. Why call someone like Levi to be his disciple? But what we see in this moment here between Jesus and Levi, we get clarity of the purpose and mission of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus Christ come? Simply it is this. Jesus came to give grace to sinners like you and me. Very simple. That's the reason why Jesus came, to give grace to sinners like you and me. And Jesus' ministry This ministry is seen in the call of Levi. Levi receives this call. Three things for us today. First is the call of grace that Levi receives. Secondly, the person of grace. And lastly, the challenge of grace. The call, the person, and the challenge of grace. First, the call of grace. Capernaum was uh, Jesus' main headquarters in his ministry in Galilee. And so most likely, he would have passed by this booth near the sea. Uh, He would have known of Levi. Levi would have known of Jesus at this time. But this time when Jesus stopped by the booth, it would be different. His life, Levi's life, would change forever. Jesus does the unthinkable and unimaginable. Verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. See, unlike the leper and the paralytic who had no choice in, their, uh, uh, in regards to their conditions, 
Levi actually chose his profession, and now this was a problem in the Jewish world. Tax tax collectors were the most hated and detested individuals among the Jews. See, Palestine was under Roman occupation. Tax collectors were Jews who worked for that uh, the, uh, the Roman oppressors. They contributed to the oppression of their own people. They were considered traitors, mentioned in the same breath as robbers and murderers. These were the tax collectors. Think of the Jewish ghetto police during the Holocaust. They were Jews helping uh, the Germans transport their own people to these concentration camps, to their own deaths. Imagine that, how you would feel if you were a Jew at that moment. But not only did they aid Rome in maintaining their occupation, their profits came from unfairly taxing and cheating their own people. So these people would cheat their own people, and that money would go in their pockets, and also to the Roman occupation. See, in the eyes of their fellow Jews, tax collectors were considered less than human. They weren't even allowed to testify in court. They were automatically disqualified as a witness. They weren't allowed to worship in the synagogue. If they were to, they would have to be very far off in order to worship God. They were deemed ceremonially unclean. If you come in contact with a tax collector, or even if you enter into his house, you would be deemed unclean. They were a disgrace to their own families. Their families even hated them. To accept money from a tax collector would be considered robbing, robbery. This is the person that Jesus calls to be his disciple. Right, Jesus, you should just pass on this one. Right? Just, just pass on this one. Yes, the fishermen will receive. Pass on this one. Swipe left. And that's, that's for the millennials, if you guys don't know. Swipe left on this one. You don't want this person on your team. It's going to hurt the cause, not help it. But yet Jesus calls this tax collector, Levi, to be his disciple. So what do we learn about this call that Levi receives? What do we learn about the call of grace? The call of grace is unconditional. The call of grace is unconditional. Nothing about Levi qualifies him to be called into Jesus's, to be in a relationship with Jesus. It's actually quite the opposite. He's disqualified. He's unqualified to be a follower of Jesus. There's nothing good about Levi for God, for Jesus to call him. He's a cheater, swindler, a traitor, someone on the outside, hopeless to be on the inside, but yet Jesus invites him in to be his disciple. And this is the scandal of grace. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. It's a free gift from God. See, the gospel doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's subversive. It's counterintuitive. It is upside down. The people that think we think are on the inside are actually on the outside. The people that we think are on the outside are actually invited in. That's the call of grace. That's what we believe as the gospel. Yet it's astonishing that Levi got this call. But another thing about the call of grace that we see in Levi is not just the invitation, but Levi's response to this call. It's shocking, completely shocking. He responds immediately. He leaves his tax booth and he follows Jesus. 
What compelled Levi to respond in this way? We, we, we hear of no incentive, no promise of blessings, no place of, of, of a seat in, in Jesus' kingdom. Levi is not promised anything. And yet, he leaves everything to follow Jesus. How are we to explain this? See, there's a second call that Levi receives here. There's a second call that Levi receives. And we don't see it in our passage. We've got to do a little bit of theology. Here, Levi receives an internal, personal, and effective call. Right? The call to, to be a disciple is a general call. But the second call that Levi receives is an effectual call. It's an effectual call that enables him to leave everything and follow Jesus. See, as sinners, which we all are, our natural disposition is hostility towards God. We, we, we wouldn't choose God if we had the choice. We are born into sin. We are depraved. Our nature is incompatible with God's nature. And so something needs to happen within our nature in order for us to follow Jesus and to say, yes, you are my Lord and Savior. Something needs to happen. Because left to ourselves, no matter how much research we do, no matter how good our tensions may be, we don't have the ability to choose God for ourselves. Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in our trespasses, spiritually dead, incapable of anything. In John 15, Jesus says, you did not choose me, I chose you. See, we are incapable, spiritually incapable and hopeless to resuscitate ourselves in order for us to experience true spiritual life. We need God to do something within us in order for us to answer this call, this general call of grace. Levi experiences an external call, but also an internal, effectual call of grace. And we see a transforming grace in the life of Levi, because many others have heard the gospel here. Many know who Jesus is and know what the gospel is. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But yet so few actually turn to Jesus. Levi receives an external call, but he also experiences an internal, effectual call. And this is the grace of Jesus Christ. See, if anyone thought that they were beyond the reach of God's grace, it would have been Levi. It would have been Levi, hated by his own family, detested by his own community, barred from, barred from entering the place of worship. Yet Jesus chose and called Levi to be his own. See, brothers and sisters, friends, this call of grace is extended to us all. To all. No matter how dark your past is, no matter the depth of your sins, even right now, your hatred, your pride, your lustfulness, your greed and idolatry, Jesus calls to us all right now, follow me. Follow me. Levi, in an act of faith, leaves his tax booth and follows Jesus. And we are called to do the same today. We are called to leave our life of sin and follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Levi is forever changed by Jesus' call of grace. But the narrative actually intensifies 
it continues to stir up controversy. The next thing I want us to look at is a person of grace. A person of grace. Verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So now Jesus is invited into Levi's house, and we see him reclining at the table. All right, once again, if I was Jesus' disciple, one of his disciples at this time, I would have thought, okay, Jesus, you've done enough for today, right? Let's just go home and let's try to regroup. Right? Let's come up with a PR plan to restore your image because this, this guy, Levi, being a part of our team is not going to be good for you, right? So let's just leave. <laughs> what happens? Levi invites Jesus into his house and Jesus is like, okay, let's go. He, let's go. He now enters into an unclean man's house. He is defiling himself in this act of going to Levi's house. Jesus, what are you doing? This is not going to go well for you. Why do this? Why do this? Jesus does the unthinkable and enters his house. And not only that, other tax collectors and other sinners are joining this party. This is a house party for the worst people of this culture and society. Now, we need to pay close attention to the language here. Who reclines first? It's Jesus. Jesus reclines first. Now, that's profound. That's profound. You know, um, I'll never forget the time that I met uh, Jane's extended family. Uh, This is after we got engaged. Uh, It was her dad's side of the family, and we went to the Dragon Restaurant in K-Town. This is an infamous place for these types of gatherings. I didn't really know what to expect, uh, but they were there first, uh, a couple of her aunts and and other cousins on the dad's side. And and I went in, I did my, you know, Korean bow, and I sat down. And I'm not exaggerating. For good 10 to 15 minutes, no one said anything. I sat there. They were just staring at me and looking, looking me up and down. Literally for 10, 15 minutes. I, I thought I was going to die. I, it, the, the tension in that room was, it was so strong. The weight in that room was so strong. And I'm like, I, you know, my, my Korean is broken. I can't initiate conversation. Jane, I don't know why she didn't say a word either. She just sat there next to me in this really awkward uh, uh, social situation. For 15 minutes, it was just complete silence. I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to leave right now. But then her uncle comes in late, and her uncle comes and sits next to me, and he starts talking to me, and he's asking me questions, and finally the ice was broken. And, and the other people started to talk, but I really thought, like, oh, okay, this is not good. Why am I here? Right? Why am I sharing this? Jesus sets the mood at this party. He's the one who reclines first. Now, two things. Two things. This tells us that Jesus is surprisingly comfortable in this environment when his contemporaries were uncomfortable. He is comfortable being with tax collectors and sinners. That's the first thing I want us to notice. Secondly, it's actually the host that needs to recline first. The host is Levi. But yet Jesus is the one who reclines first. It's, it's reversed. Jesus reclines first, acting as the host, setting the tone setting the mood of this party that we see. 
See, these sinners are in the, in the presence of the master, teacher, and healer, the Son of Man who has the authority to forgive sins. Now, if I were sitting at the table, I would have sit at the far end of the table. I would have been anxious. I would have so much angst within me. This man knows everything about me. He knows everything about my past, my past addiction, my dysfunctional family, my past relationships, my anger, my impatience towards my children. He will know everything about me, my sins, my ugliness, all my baggage. I would have just, my posture would have been perfect. I wouldn't even breathe. I don't want to draw any attention to myself if I was at this party because I know this man, Jesus, knows things about me. But what do we see Jesus doing? I will look over and Jesus is reclining. He's actually laughing. He's eating. He's starting conversations. He's actually liking this place full of people like me. This is, this is amazing. I, I would be shocked at first, but then I would be relieved. Wow, God is okay. No, he's not okay. He actually wants me here. Brothers and sisters, if grace is something that God wanted us to simply know in our mind, he could have sent us a memo. He could have sent us a little piece of paper and say, hey, this is what grace is, unmerited favor. If he wanted us to know about grace just up here, he could have just sent us a memo. But instead, he sends us a person. He sends us his only son to show us what grace really looks like and feels like. See, God not only tells us about his grace, he gave it to us in the most intimate expression, in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, herein lies the problem for many of us here that are sitting here right now. Here's the problem. For many of us, we know, we know grace by definition. But many of us, we have not yet encountered the person of grace. We haven't. And so we hear grace. It remains in our head, but it doesn't move the heart. It doesn't change us. It doesn't transform us. See, brothers and sisters, grace is meant to be experienced. Not just cognitively known, it's meant to be experienced at a personal level. But yet, so few of us experience it. See, the person of grace wants to meet you, not just here at church, but in your personal space. He wants to invade your house. He wants to know you, not just your good, but he wants to know your bad. He doesn't want to embrace just a version of you that you, you just, you know, conjure up on a Sunday. No, he wants everything about you. He wants to embrace your entire being, your sins and all. It is an encounter. It is an encounter with the person of grace that changes and transforms us. See, Jesus reclining and eating with the tax collectors and sinners is, is, is an example of a personal, intimate act of forgiveness, forgiveness and an extension of fellowship. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's what it meant for them to share in a meal. I forgive you. I want to be with you. I want a relationship with you. I want us to notice the order in which things happen here because it's very important. See, Jesus in his sovereign grace, there was nothing good about Levi for him to call him. In his sovereign grace, he calls Levi to follow him. Levi then responds in faith, and then Levi invites Jesus into his house. 
And then others are gathered around this. Other sinners and tax collectors are gathered. We got to understand this order. There's significance in the order in which things happen. See, in religion, what are we told? Get your act together. Make sure you're good enough to go to church. Make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds in order for God to accept you. Do all of this, and then God will accept you. See, the gospel reverses it. Jesus sovereignly calls us by grace. He gives us faith then to believe, and by faith we are now accepted, and now we are free to submit and follow Jesus Christ. See, the primary motivation in religion is what? It's fear. It's fear. Make sure you do this so you don't get punished. Right? Make sure you're good enough so that God will accept you. See, what the gospel of grace does, it gets rid of fear. Because Jesus accepts us based on what? His grace. His goodness. There's nothing good in us that, that deems us acceptable and approved. The gospel reverses it. So you're accepted. Now live a life. In submission. Live your life in response to this free gift of salvation that I'm giving to you. See, but if you think about it, grace is not very, it's not a very easy thing to receive, is it? It's not easy. Grace is not an easy thing to receive. It challenges us. It challenges us so much. And so I want to close with the challenge of grace. Verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, we see the scribes of the Pharisees protesting. They were the religious experts of Jesus' day. Why was this so offensive? Why was this so offend, uh, offensive to the religious? See, the Pharisees, in, in addition to the laws of God, the written laws of God, they had their oral traditions called the Mishnah. These were the oral traditions. They held it equal to the written laws of God. And according to the Mishnah, the sinner, there was a category for sinners. And let me explain to you who they were. Gamblers, moneylenders, people who raced doves for sports. Now that's weird. Those that traded on the Sabbath year. Thieves, the violent, shepherds, and tax collectors. These were the people grouped in this category, sinners. Now, which one of these stands out the most? Shepherds. Why in the world were shepherds considered sinners? Unworthy of God. Unworthy of being in the synagogue to worship him. Because shepherds were too busy. They were too poor. They were ignorant. They couldn't read. See, the standard for the Pharisees and the religious was the Torah. The law of God, that's the standard for them to, for one to deserve grace and to experience blessing. It is your dedication and your submission to the law. Shepherds did not have that opportunity to, to study the law like the religious of the days. The law was a basis of one's approval and acceptance and righteousness. It was one's dedication to the law that one can worship God. See, those that didn't study the law belonged to an alien class known as sinners and tax collectors. This was a system that created division, separation, and barriers among people between those who were allowed to worship God and those that weren't. 
See, what Jesus is doing here in this act of eating with sinners and tax collectors, he's tearing down those barriers and building a bridge for sinners to get to God by grace, not by the law. Jesus is challenging and defying the very system of the religious of his days, superseding their authority, disrespecting their traditions. See, Jesus reclines with the undeserving and unrighteous. See, what grace does is challenges it challenges the very social and religious norm of our days as well. It challenges the social and religious norm. You can't earn salvation by your knowledge and observance of the law. Salvation is rather given freely. Jesus is flipping everything upside down. It makes no sense. See, here's a challenge for, for us when it comes to grace. You had nothing to do with it. You had no hand in your salvation. Now, that is, that is completely humbling, isn't it? You had absolutely nothing to do with salvation. If you're a Christian here today, you had nothing to do with it. Now, that is offensive. That is so challenging for us to hear because the very system that we live in, our whole upbringing is in a works-based system, a performance-based system. You study hard, you graduate. You work hard, you get promoted. Right? you got to earn your respect you got to work for, to, to, to live a good life. But the gospel just completely, it's, it, it just flips everything upside down. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And even the faith that you have is not even your own. God gave it to you. Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So no one may boast. No, but you see, there has to be some qualities, right, within me that, that God would choose me, right? And God would save me. Nope. Nothing. Nothing, absolutely nothing within you qualified you for salvation. I was spiritually dead. A dead person can't do anything. See, Jesus doesn't love us because we are lovable. We are lovable because Jesus loved us. Change in life comes from a deeper understanding of this scandalous and radical grace that we've been given. See, this grace should stir up awe and wonder, shouldn't it? It should make us amazed. There should be awe and wonder that God will save a sinner like me. Why would God save me? Why would Jesus call me? But there is such a lack of awe and wonder. I notice this. There's such a lack of awe and wonder amongst us as Christians. It's because we know of grace and we so few, and so few of us regularly and intimately experience the person of grace. It is a deeper, intimate knowledge of Jesus that would produce awe and wonder where we start asking this question that is so important, why me? Why me? And then Jesus will remind us once again in verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, I wonder how many of us would be uncomfortable 
If we were to observe this party that we see Jesus having with sinners and tax collectors, I wonder how many of us would actually cringe. I think many of us would cringe. I think I would have cringed. The gospel of grace challenges my own standard and expectations of who I believe are worthy of his grace. We all have these standards. A person who comes to church should have their lives together. Their families should look perfect. They should dress well. They should be professional, always smiling. God forbid anyone attending our church that is homeless, poor, struggling with an addiction, struggling with sexual orientation, weak in their faith, or even faithless. God forbid that that God would call those people to come to our church. So we have all these standards and expectations, even for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are so hard on each other. We are so ungracious. See, may I remind us again, and we've heard this over and over again, the church isn't a museum for saints. It is a hospital for the sick. And we are all sick. Church, are we a place that reflects the grace of Jesus? Or have we set up our own standard and systems that automatically bar people from encountering Christ? Are we a community that makes sense in the eyes of the world and confuses Jesus? Or do we love and show grace and and, and accept others in a way that confuses the world but makes sense to Jesus? I pray and hope that it's the latter. If you're not a Christian today, Jesus extends grace to you. He's calling out to you right now. To respond to this call, all you need to do is confess your need of a Savior and trust in Jesus. That calls for you, and you don't have to do anything. But admit that you're a sinner and that Jesus is your Savior. Now, if you're convicted today in light of the truth of the gospel, I'll love, either myself or Pastor Mike, would love to talk to you about and pray with you and explain to you what this Christian life is about. Please come and see me after this service. To the Christian, has grace become ordinary and mundane? Is it just ordinary and mundane? Do we presume upon God's grace? Do we presume upon it? Do we take it for granted? Could it be that we've neglected fellowship with the person of grace? And I want us to challenge us to pursue that person. Have intimacy with Jesus Christ. And how we do that is primarily through the reading of the word where Jesus speaks to us and through prayer where we speak to Jesus. We can experience his grace every single day. It's available for us. All we need to do is access it. See, when Jesus Christ came, he specifically had in mind sinners like you and me. He not only dwelt among sinners, he would die in the place of sinners on that cross, even though he was without sin. Why? To pay the penalty of our sins, to wash us clean. He rose again and he gave us his righteousness and grants us access to his grace every single day again and again. Church, let's respond to this grace, call of grace. Let's pursue the person of grace. And as a church, let's reflect this grace to others for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for saving me. 
I thank you for loving me so deeply, not just in word, but demonstrated by your son Jesus Christ on that cross. That you sovereignly called us, and then you give us the ability to answer that call and follow you. Who are we? That you be so gracious to us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you restore awe and wonder in this message of grace that we receive every Sunday that we read about in your word. Restore awe and wonder. Help us to be amazed at the scandal of grace that we we see in your call to Levi. We are sinners. We are Levi, that tax collector, depraved, hopeless, dead in our sins. But yet you resuscitated us. You gave us life. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to see the beauty and the worth and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Help us as a church to reflect this grace that our arms will be open wide to those that are struggling, to those that are discouraged. God, we need you. We need you so desperately. Father, we thank you for this grace. We give you all praise, glory, and honor. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus I pray these things.